In the truest sense of the word, God's love is a holy love. And so as it comes to you in the gospel, it starts to determine the way in which you ought to love. The responsibility we have is not to love in a generic way, but to love in a holy way, in an upright way, a way that honors God's righteousness. Consider the challenge that is before us. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part two of Holy Affections with Pastor Paul Twiss. His text is from 1 John chapter 4. In yesterday's part one, we asked the question, how does the way we see God affect how we treat others or God? So how would you define the word love? We might say, well, love is this or love is that. And some of us might demonstrate love thinking, Well, you just can't use words to define it. How about love as the personification of a person? Today in Holy Affections, Pastor Paul teaches that since the Bible reveals God is love, we need to heed what God the Father and God the Son have spoken. John the Apostle, who wrote this epistle, was with the Son during his earthly ministry and has experienced his love. Here's part two of Holy Affections. You see, the privilege of this love, we stand here as the recipients, not of some other love, but as the love which is love, which is God before the foundation of the world. This inner Trinitarian love now comes to us. And there are at least two immediate implications from that. The first is to understand this, that as God is love, without any reference to anything else, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving each other perfectly, God's love is inherently holy, inherently set apart, distinct, unlike any other kind of love. In the truest sense of the word, God's love is a holy love. And so as it comes to you in the gospel, it starts to determine the way in which you ought to love. The responsibility we have is not to love in a generic way, but to love in a holy way in an upright way, a way that honors God's righteousness. Consider the challenge that is before us. Notice how John, at this point, switches to the negative. Anyone who does not love God, anyone who does not love, does not know God, speaking most likely of those false teachers. Did they love while they were among you? Possibly. Did you experience some kind of generosity, benevolence from them while they're among you? Possibly. But not in this way. Not that that is in accord with God's love. The responsibility we have is to love in a holy love. You see, we live in a time which paradoxically affirms the priority of love. You look at society and the priority of love is readily affirmed. Indeed, it is even the case that in society today, the fact that God is love is affirmed. But that love has been so separated from God's holiness that it has been altogether sanitized, distorted, mutated, 
All of God's attributes must work together. And the love that is affirmed in society today knows not God's holiness. It has been separated so that though society may say God is love and we must love, the love that is practiced is a love that is predicated merely on tolerance and choice. We live in an age where society doesn't care whether you go on with your wife or divorce her. Society cares that you had a choice. We live in an age where society does not care whether you identify as a man or a woman. Society cares that you had a choice. We live in an age where society doesn't care whether you let your baby live or not. What society cares about is that you had a choice. And if you didn't have a choice, then that is unloving. Our responsibility is to love with a holy love, a love that runs on the rails of God's holiness. Second implication that flows readily from the fact that God is love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, loving each other perfectly before the foundation of the world. When God loved you, he loved you freely. His love came to you not based upon some need of his. To think about the love of God coming to you in the gospel is to think upon one of the freest acts you could ever conceive of. He had no need of you. And with no need, he loved you. And again, this must determine the manner in which we love. We do not have the right to love based upon preference. We do not have the right to consider the loveliness of the object. If God had considered the loveliness of the object, you would not be here today. You are the recipient of God's free love. And so we must love with a holy affection that is given freely. And the only means by which we might accomplish such high, lofty standards is again to think upon, to meditate upon, to train our hearts in a proper understanding of God's love. John gives a fourth reason. We love, why? Because we live through Christ. He goes on, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And so John here begins to advance his argument Having spoken about God being the source of love, the definition of love, he picks up here that sending motif that is so prevalent all the way through his gospel. The father sending his son. And here he says the sending of his son that we might have life in him is evidence of God's love for us. And it is to be the impetus for our love for others. Now, without doubt, there is at least some theological overlap here between the idea of life in Christ and the relationship, the loving, knowing relationship that we have with God. But at the same time, there is perhaps here a particular accent on eternal life in Christ, another one of John's favorite themes. And often when we see the word life, live, it is John's shorthand for eternal life. And so the question becomes, what does it mean to have eternal life? What does it mean to live through Christ? It is a life that is saturated with God's love. It is a a life that you enjoy now. Eternal life is not merely future, eschatological. You enjoy eternal life now. 
And it begins with acceptance before the Father, where once you had no place to appear before his throne, where once you could not stand before him, you could not offer a prayer to him, where once you were rightly a stench in his nostrils and his wrath hung over you. Now you have as much right to appear before the Father as the beloved Son. To have life in Christ means that you now have an advocate. Besides the Father's right hand, you have a helper, one who is interceding for you day and night, hour by hour. Christ is upholding you. He's pleading your case and he pleads it perfectly. And be sure he's not saying to the Father, forgive him because I don't think he meant to sin. The case that Christ brings before the Father is not Father, cleanse him again because I think we're on an upward trajectory and this time next year, I don't think we'll be doing this anymore. It's so often the way we think. Christ is standing with the Father and saying, Father, forgive him again because I died for him and he lives in me. And the Father is not begrudging. He delights to hear that plea. And he willingly and joyfully accepts it every time. He is in complete agreement with the Son. Because you have life in Christ. To have life in Christ means that you now abide. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit abiding with the Trinity. Going along with them in such a way that they are serving you. They are ministering to you. Carrying you along. Teaching you the truth. Working in you to such a degree that now... There are fruits of righteousness being produced in your life to the praise of God who saved you. To have life in Christ means that you are being led step by step, day by day to that final day. Very, very, very soon. You will be stood before the Lord Jesus and you will look into his eyes and you will see the hands with their holes, and you will sing praises to his face. And if in that moment it was somehow possible to take your eyes off the risen Lord Jesus, to look at yourself, you would find no sin. If somehow it were possible in that moment to take your eyes off the risen Lord Jesus and to look around you, you would see no sin, because we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is, because we have life in Christ. Can you see how saturated our lives are with love? We have six children, and I remember all the way back when we had one, and life was a whole lot simpler back then. And I remember as we were expecting number two, Laura saying to me, I just don't know if I can love a second in the same way that I love this child. I just don't know if my heart can love a second to the same degree. Your heart is bursting with love for this baby. And now number two is coming. And of course, the truth is that God works a miracle in your heart, enlarges your heart so that 
Number two arrives and you find you have just as much love for a second. And again for a number three and four and five and six and miracle after miracle of love in your heart. And I think upon that and I know how imperfect our love is. How inconsistent, how flawed is our love. God loves us with the perfect love. Infinite and free and holy. And pastor, if you look around your congregation and you don't see this kind of love being practiced, you're not seeing that self-denying, life-laying-down, holy affection being exercised amongst the saints. It may be because you have not preached the love of God. It might be because you have been too quick to preach the gospel imperatives. And you have not laid the necessary foundation of the gospel indicatives. It may be that you climb into the pulpit and all too quickly go to the commands of Scripture, which, to be sure, are easier to preach, rather than going about the far more difficult task of ministering the gospel to a weary soul, bathing the souls of the congregation in the truth of God's love. To do so would be to go against the logic of Scripture. It would be to go against John's argument here. Let us love one another because God has loved us. In this utilitarian age where we're so eager to do something, to tick a box, to respond, to act, John says no. Above all things, know the love of God, and that is the foundation upon which we respond. John goes on to give a fifth reason why we love. We love, why? Because Christ is our propitiation. And this is love, verse 10, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And maybe your Bible doesn't have that word propitiation, in which case you need to close your Bible. And when this session is over, go visit the book tent. Men, we must continue to define the gospel in terms of Christ's propitiation. We cannot afford to define the gospel apart from Christ's propitiation. Google has that tool now where you can look up the relative use of a word over time and Sure enough, it shows that propitiation is less and less used now than it was before. We must help our people to understand Christ's propitiation because it speaks so specifically to what happened on the cross. If a vehicle is going down the street and a child is playing in the street and neither driver nor child has seen what's about to happen, but you have and you, you run in between the car and the child, you take up the motion of that vehicle, you propitiate its force in the same way that Christ propitiated God's wrath on the cross. Seemingly straightforward. So why is it being used less frequently today? And in part, the answer is because outside of Scripture, this word is often used so as to imply that the, the deity was in some way persuaded by the sacrifice to now act benevolently to the subject, that in some way that sacrifice persuaded, cajoled the deity into now loving the subject. 
And you see immediately the breakdown in our illustration or just how far the biblical understanding of propitiation is from that. It is not that Christ somehow persuaded God to love us at the cross, but rather in love, God sent his son to die on the cross. Was there a holy wrath over the sinner? Yes. But at the same time, God sent his son to die on the cross for us as an act of his love towards us. This is where the driver needs to also be the person getting in the way of the vehicle. It defines the God whom we serve. It is not that God loves us because Christ died for us, but that Christ died for us because God loves us. Men, we must be found at the cross. Our ministries must be found at the cross. Why? Because it defines the God whose excellencies we seek to proclaim. I was told of a philosopher whose name is Nicholas Waterstorff. He's made many notable contributions. He has four children and then a fifth who died aged 25 in a climbing accident. And the loss of his son has marked him. His grief has influenced much of his subsequent work. And if Waterstorff is ever asked to give an address, to deliver a paper, to speak at a conference, and the, the folks that invite him ask, how should we introduce you? He says, introduce me as the man who has lost a son. And God did not lose his son by some accident at the cross, but it defines him. And so as you tell your neighbor about your God, as you tell the lady in the store about your God, as you tell your children about your God, you say, my God is the God who sent his son to die so that I might have life. My God is the God who sent his son to die so that today I live. And it is on that basis that we love. Finally, number six, why do we love? We love because we have been entrusted with God's love. John says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Notice that John repeats the opening exhortation there. Two times he gives us the exhortation to love one another at the very beginning and then in verse 11. And he repeats himself there because the propitiatory work of Christ is the climax of his argument. And then he says in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Speaking there about the doctrine of abiding, John goes on to say, when we love one another with a holy affection, God's love is perfected in us. Now, what does it mean that his love is perfected? Not that now our love for one another is without error. Not that it is without flaw. We understand this side of glory that will never happen. The verb to be perfected there carries with it the sense of reaching its intended goal. As we love one another, says John, now God's love in us has reached its intended goal. It's now doing the very thing that it was intended to do. It is now working in us and through us so that we love like God loves. Not that anyone said it would be easy. No one ever said this would be easy. There are no footnotes in your Bible. There's no verse we can turn to that says this will be an easy task. A friend of mine who pastors in the South told me of a song they sing in the congregation. I'm so glad you're in God's family. 
And the idea is everyone looks at one another as they sing, making eye contact. I'm so glad you're in God's family. And because he's a Brit, he has a dry sense of humor. And he said, when we sing that song, I say, I'm surprised you're in God's family. And he said, the reason I can sing that is because I know that as they look at me, they're thinking exactly the same thing. No one ever said it would be easy, but consider the privilege. John says, no one has ever seen God. Why does he conclude with that? Why say that? You have to remember all of 1 John is in many ways an unfolding of the theology that John himself received from Jesus recorded for us in John's gospel. There are a multitude of connections between this epistle and John's gospel. And it's in John's gospel that we read there, no one has ever seen God. Same words, no one has ever seen God. And yet in John's gospel, he said, no one has ever seen God, but the son has made him known. John chapter one, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus, the son explains him, puts him on display. And the argument here, many years later, Jesus ascended no longer bodily with us. As John hands on the baton to the church, he says, no one has ever seen God. But when you love with a self-denying, life-laying-down, freely, holy affection, you make God known. You explain God to a watching world. You see why now, in that last meal, Jesus says, of all the things he could have said, he says, you've got to love one another. You have got to love one another, and it is by this that the world will know that you're my disciples. It is by this that you will explain God, you will put him on display. And what can be sure is that in society, though a biblical holy affection is by no means practiced, as they look in on the church, they know what they expect to see. They may not know scripture, but they know that they should expect something different, something uniquely holy. No one has ever seen God, but as we love one another with a biblical holy affection, we make him known. And in accordance with the eschatological emphasis that pervades every section of this letter, we understand we do that until that great last day when Jesus returns. And in that day, we will love him perfectly. We will love each other perfectly. We will receive love perfectly. And we will not need to explain God because he will be fully known. May we be those who lead the church in a biblical, holy affection. Let's pray to close. Our Father, we love you and we are so thankful for your love towards us. You are love and we are the beneficiaries of your love. Strengthen us to love one another to lead the church in love for one another until that day when Christ returns. Help us and be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. There are plenty of songs, books, and movies where people sing or ask, I want to know what love is. But have you ever asked, I wonder who love is? Does that change your perspective on it? Do you know about love from an idea or from God himself? If you want to learn more about what true love is and what it means to have a relationship with this loving and holy God, come to our website 
TimelessTruthToday.org. Select Broadcasts on the homepage, and there you'll find a treasury of teaching to help you. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist and a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Sunday's coming, and if you don't have a home church, come worship with us, 10.30 a.m. on Sunday. We're located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks, California. If you're not in the area, join the live stream on the church website, bethanyto.org. On Monday, we start a new series, Building for Whose Glory? I'm Matt Williams. Hope you have a great weekend, and thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.